This is getting out of hand. Now there are two of them. Where's your innovation, huh? Sequels suck. Do the same thing. Everyone's happy. It's all about money, boys! Here we go again. The laws of celestial mechanics dictate that when two objects collide, there's always damage of a collateral nature. Now, are you sure you want to play this game? Hey folks, and welcome back to Franchise Fatigue, where we are knee-deep in the most important case of our careers. Uh, actually, probably not, but hey. But anyway, this is a show where we talk about film franchises one installment at a time. I am your host, Gabe Green, and I am joined on this adventure, as always, by my faithful friend and companion, James Hamrick. How's it going, man? I'm doing pretty good. Just got over a, uh, a week of tests once again, so ready to watch some more movies and talk about them, kind of how I recover from these weeks. Yeah, it took a week off, and I was really hoping that I would be able to catch up with some editing on the show, but it didn't happen, so I'm still way behind. Um, so this week, uh, in order to help us talk about the second of Guy Ritchie's Sherlock Holmes films, we are joined by a very special guest, Alexis Johnson. Thank you for coming on. Hi, guys. Thanks for having me. Yeah. Um, so you just want to introduce our, introduce yourself and uh, tell us uh, what you, anything you might be up to online? or? Sure. Um, well, I my main thing with film is that I want to be in the industry. So I am an aspiring filmmaker of sorts. I've written a lot of screenplays. So first and foremost, I'm a creator and that's what I love to do. And then, of course, I love to discuss film with a variety of different people online through podcasts or just by writing um, posts in which you I really like to break down the themes and the really meaty aspects of something. So that's what I do. All right. And uh, you just uh, put out a book, right? Yeah, a young adult um, historical fiction I worked on for a while. Um, I really enjoyed that, but I would say that I definitely like to read books more than write them. <laughs> I like writing <laughs> screenplays a lot more. Okay. What's it called? Uh, Chivalry's Children. All right. And uh, before we move into the uh, main discussion, I want to ask you guys, if you enjoy the show, to please take a moment to go and rate and review us on iTunes and like us on Facebook. And uh, something you uh, brought to our attention, Alexis, is that uh, today, as of uh, this recording, is Robert Downey Jr.'s 53rd birthday. So, uh, happy birthday. Yeah, I thought that was pretty great. Yeah. It's amazing what he's up to at 53 still. I was shocked, yeah. <laughs> Headlining all of these action movies and things like that, man. And uh, just to provide a little perspective, uh, since you weren't here for our discussion of Sherlock Holmes, uh, what are your feelings on the first film in the series? Oh, I loved it. Um, I'm a huge Guy Ritchie fan. I know um, he's kind of, I guess, an acquired taste to some people, but I love his films and his method of storytelling and his witty banter and all the ways that he uh, puts his films together. So I love the first film. And I remember when I first saw it, it kind of, for me, revived Sherlock Holmes as a character, as a story, it just made it really thrilling and exciting um, for me personally. So it was a good, yeah, just, I guess, way to dive into his world. And it's very uniquely in his voice. And I think that that's really cool that he was able to tell a good story that is actually pretty true to canon, you know, and also have it be very much in his voice. Mm -hmm. Yeah, we talked about last time how it's really interesting how that, uh, 
Guy Ritchie's style, the way he plays with time and narratives fits so well into this, you know, detective style, just of the way Holmes views the world. It, it just felt like a kind of a, a match made in heaven between the director and, and a subject. Oh, yeah, I definitely agree with that. Um, he's really good at um, sort of combining characters in heists or in mysteries, you know, thrilling aspects like that. So I think he definitely nailed it with Sherlock Holmes. All right. Uh, so why don't we uh, dive a bit into the uh, behind the scenes story of this film? Uh, James, why don't you tell us a bit about that? Right, so following the success of Sherlock Holmes in 2009, WB wanted a sequel as soon as possible. Uh, so they got together the same producing team of Lionel Wiggum, Joel Silver, Susan Downey, uh, who happens to be Robert Downey Jr.'s wife. Uh, they were in a, a big rush to try to get it made that Guy Ritchie actually had to drop out of a Lobo film and Robert Downey Jr. had to leave Cowboys and Aliens. And it would have been really interesting to see what that movie would have been like with, uh, with him mm-hmm. headlining it. Unlike the first film, this one's plot was much more directly based on uh, Sir Arthur Conan Doyle's original stories. Uh, it took elements from both The Final Problem and The Empty House. Uh, Michelle and Kieran Mulroney took over the script writing duties this time around, however. Most of the original cast ended up returning in some form or other. Um, obviously, one of the bigger changes was the introduction of a new female lead. Uh, producer Joel Silver said he wanted to model it after the Bond series with a new female lead in every film, uh, which is kind of weird considering she doesn't really fit the the Bond type. They don't. They definitely don't treat her like a Bond girl in this movie. Um, uh, obviously, Numi Rapace was the actress they ended up bringing in to play Romani or the Romani, the fortune teller Simza Heron, who's usually just called Sim. Uh, they had a hard time convincing Rachel McAdams to come back for such a small role, but she did eventually agree. Uh, Jared Harris was hired to play the legendary Holmes villain, Professor Moriarty, and Stephen Fry ended up coming along to play Holmes's much less adventurous older brother, Mycroft. Uh, and then Stephen Anderson plays Colonel Moran. Uh, the majority of filming took place in England, um, though there were pretty extensive location work done all over Europe. Um, like the first one, they made great use of just Europe's uh, really gorgeous historical architecture. In order to accurately reflect the Romani culture and music, Guy Ritchie and composer Hans Zimmer traveled all around Europe to visit various villages and just, you know, kind of immerse themselves into that, that, that type of music. Um, and he wove that style very extensively through the score, and it, he even brought on several uh, Roma bands to record in, within the score. Um, he was actually very affected by the extreme poverty he saw and ended up donating a percentage of the soundtrack's proceeds to help pay for necessities like water and heat in uh, various gypsy communities over Europe, which is, I think that's really awesome. Yeah, that is really cool. And the score of both films is like one of my favorite things. I mean, Guy Ritchie always has fabulous music, but the Sherlock Holmes scores are like creme de la creme good. Yeah, this seemed to be really where uh, Hans Zimmer really started to start ex- you know, experimenting and he definitely continued that with in uh, Nolan's films, but it seems that this, the, the uh, Sherlock Holmes films are really kind of the cusp of where he really started developing his style. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it's cool. Cause you know, obviously there's a lot returning from the first one in terms of themes, but like you said, you, you also definitely feel the, the, um, all the different European influences through all of the different uh, countries they go to. It, it doesn't feel just like a complete rehash of the first one. Yeah, it's a much more somber uh, score, I think, overall than the first one, which had a much more abrasive kind of uh, life to it. And not in a bad way, but just it's, it's different. I think that's good. 
Um, and uh, finally, the film was given its release in Dece- on December 16th of 2011, pretty much two years after the release of the first one. So do you remember your first time seeing this film, and what has your relationship uh, been with it over the years? Uh, let's start with you, Alexa. Alexis, sorry. <laughs> um, oh, yeah, I mean, I remember it for sure, just because I really loved I loved the first one. And I like. I think I might possibly like this one even more, though there are... It's kind of... I'm kind of in between them, actually. But, yeah, I, these are definitely films like I really want to see a third one made. I just, um, they're very watchable and rewatchable to me anyway. Um, mainly just because of the, the witty banter and just the way that they are put together. Um, and yeah, I pretty much just really love them, I guess in in simple terms. And uh, what about you, James? So, I mean, obviously, like I said on the last one, I was kind of surprised at how much I really enjoyed the first one. So when this one came out, I think it was, again, a situation of just me and my dad looking for something to do. So we enjoyed the first one. We might as well go see the second one. And uh, I I preferred the second one the first time I saw it, rewatching it. I think I might slightly prefer the first. Uh, I think the first gets maybe some more technical stuff right. But honestly, in terms of enjoyment, they're probably right equal with each other. Uh, there's there's some things that this one does that do work for me more than the first one did, and so uh, I think the two work together really well, and uh, I'm excited to talk about this one now. Yeah, so um, uh, as I said, the the first one was a, a huge favorite of mine around when it came out, and I I don't remember exactly when I first when I saw this. It wasn't in the theaters, but uh, I do remember liking it a lot, not quite as much as the uh, as the first one, and uh, we we had actually uh, considered bringing this on for underrated back when we had that show. Um, so I'm really glad we're able to talk about it now. However, I'm really glad both of you said you think it's about as good as the first one because, I don't know, on this last viewing, I just noticed some issues that I had never noticed before that did bring it down a couple notches. I mean, we'll get to all of those, but uh, part of it might have been because it was really late and I was tired. <laughs> but I think there are some. there's going to be some really interesting discussion about just about how this screenplay works at, um, that I'm really interested to get into. Uh, so th- let's just dive right into the main review. Uh, one of the things that really stood out to me this time is that they a- they actually grew the relationship between Holmes and Watson a lot. Like a lot of these sequels will try and just recapture all of the same dynamics and uh, and the other things we loved about the first one. And there would have been a fear, I think, that they would just try to replicate the same kind of grumpy banter that they had just just having that tension uh, mainly of, of course because of mary that you know that that fear of separation uh that that really drove the um their the core arc of the first film i'm really glad that they didn't try to repeat that again I mean, there's a little bit of that but like like when they're in the car going to watson stag party but even there it doesn't feel the same it's it, like the, the, there's not that nasty edge that Holmes had when he, when he was trying to break them up uh, in the first film. It feels kind of like they're just going through the motions, like he's resigned and just and now he's just kind of playing his grumpy self for the fun of it. And I, I really like that they kind of took that relationship and, and allowed it to develop. And the whole f- friendship over this film, there's like kind of a sadness tinging it all. Um just their moments, they don't have that same fierceness about it. It's like it's like they know the end is inevitable, 
And they're kind of accepting of that, even as they have this really strong, vibrant friendship between them. I think it's really interesting. I'm, I'm really glad they did something new and d- allow these characters to be propelled uh, farther along on their uh, emotional journey together. Yeah, I definitely would agree. Um, I think one thing that you mentioned with was Mary being kind of a big point, but mostly I got, you know, from watching the film, kind of this transition, why it, why it feels different is it's the transition of, you know, anyone who's single and someone like Holmes, who's determined to be single forever. Um, when their best friend gets married, you know, marriage does change your friendships (laughs) no matter what. I mean, it's going to, and that's okay. Like that's a good seasonal change in life that you should embrace. Um, so Holmes, I think really struggled a lot throughout the film with being kind of selfish about it, clinging to the past. You know, he didn't really want things to transform in that way. Um, but that was like kind of his arc, I feel was, letting go, um, being more sacrificial than selfish about their friendship and about their, you know, camaraderie and how, you know, the marriage transition for Watson, um, is a, is a beautiful thing that should be celebrated, but it is a change. And there is a bittersweetness to that, you know, regardless of anyone's relationship with their friends. So I thought that was really interesting. One of the things that I liked a lot about it was that it, they had the wedding early on in the film. Um, I feel like were they to try to end it almost as like, you know, ap- after the, the climax of the film is over and then we end in this wedding. I It almost feels like that was what the first one might have done. Obviously, they're not married by the end of it, but that's what's kind of looming over everything. And mm-hmm. I, you had mentioned whenever, you know, the, the, their ride in the car, whenever... Uh, Holmes is still he's he's saying similar things that he did in the first one, but like you said, there's almost like a, a resignation here where he's just he doesn't even feel fully committed to it. And uh and then after that, you know, we actually we do have the wedding. And so because of that, they kind of do themselves a favor by eliminating the possibility of retreading too much because they no longer have to work like they're in the transition stage now instead of having to anticipate it. And that in of itself is going to ensure that you're not really just retreading the exact same ground again. So by having that early on in the film, you kind of make sure that everything afterwards is a new dynamic. And so uh, something else, too, that I, I liked a lot is that they kind of visually represent this change, you know, just in the the way the apartment looks now, or I guess the flat looks now, uh, going into it, seeing his his office transformed into, you know, this just conspiracy theory room with all the the yarn and things like that. You can see visibly the changes going on in Holmes's life. And I love how Watson absolutely refuses to be baited now. Like when he goes in, Holmes is uh, testing his camouflage and he keeps shooting him with blow darts and and Watson doesn't, doesn't even acknowledge them. He just goes and sits down and reads. It's just, it's really, you know, compared to what he would have done probably in the first film, it's just, you know, a, a lovely little thing to show that growth. Um, and I'm I'm glad you mentioned the wedding. That's that might just be my favorite scene in the film. Just seeing where Holmes in the first was trying to sabotage everything. Now he's the one that makes sure that Watson gets to the wedding on time. You know he's there helping him get dressed and cleaning him up. And it's just this really lovely scene with it. And uh, uh, Zimmer's score is really mm-hmm. really sweet. I think. And it just has as they're going with their honor guard, and you just see 
Holmes in the distance kind of just okay with it. it, it I think it's absolutely lovely. Yeah, and that goes through. Oh, sorry. Go ahead. <laughs> no, you go ahead. Sorry. <laughs> I was just going to say that whole theme goes through to the end of the movie, you know, um, when. Hold on, pause. We're allowed to spoil away in these, right? Uh, yeah, yeah. Go ahead. People know. People should know. Okay. That by now. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to say they should know by now. Um, anyway, yeah, through to the end of the movie when Moriarty and him have their big confrontation, which I'm sure is a whole other thing we'll talk about later because it's amazing. But there's this moment, you know, when he says, Moriarty says to Holmes, you know, I'm going to think of a very creative end for the doctor and his wife. And you know, Holmes reacts to the word the doctor, but when he includes the wife, when he includes Mary, that's when Holmes is like, oh, heck no, basically, because I think it's this, he's accepted Mary as part of Watson's life and as part of like, you know, they they go together now. And so I think it just like, it, you almost see it like light of fire. And that's just Robert Downey Jr.'s amazingness, but you see it like light of fire in his eyes and you're like, and you just know it's like, he's not going to let that happen. And I thought that was so just really moving. It was great. Yeah, the, the fact that his entire arc in the last film was trying to sabotage mm-hmm. that and, and it was entirely selfish now to the second film, his ultimate act is to sacrifice his life or maybe uh you know to save his friend in this way so it's really a really nice arc yeah i'm I'm glad you bring up the wedding too because i really really love that scene too and honestly just the way they handled it makes me really happy that they don't try to i i I remember sitting in the theater the very first time i saw it my worry was that they were going to try to do some sort of over-the-top sherlock antics to try to like keep it from going through something silly like that but it was obvious that that wasn't the way they were going. I think one of my favorite moments is just when he first steps out of the car and he holds his hand out and he like, he takes Watson by the hand and he slowly leads him and like, the like attempting the most dignified manner. And then as, as Mary walks by and looks kind of nervous, I think this is one of the moments where you see he, he's genuinely kind of, kind of ter- come come to terms with everything going on, like especially with Mary. And it seems like this is almost a moment where he starts to accept Mary. She looks at him nervously and he just kind of gives her this wink, like it's, it's okay. I got him cleaned up. This is actually okay. And then obviously that last moment where he's, he's standing in the distance and it, it's not a forced smile at all. Like there's genuine happiness in his, in his face. Uh, and he realizes that while this life may not be the best for Sherlock, you know, Watson is his friend and, there's there's something there's satisfaction he's taking in seeing his friend achieve this kind of happiness. Yeah, and something about the entire film, similarly to how they didn't rehash um, that relationship, Guy Ritchie's direction is very different. Like there's still about a, you know half dozen scenes where he really gets to go out all out with his visuals and style, but overall the direction seems much more subdued and like almost elegant throughout. It's, 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 <laughs> I remembering the opening of uh, the first Sherlock Holmes, where you just had you know Zimmer's music blaring and it was you know the quick cutting and just this it was just this insane freneticism that really isn't here for the majority of the film. He seems to he seems really seems to be trying to make a more grown up and almost sad movie. Uh, did, did either of you notice that? I would say it feels far more dramatic. Definitely, like he's. It seems like, and I wonder if this is just 
you know, Sherlock Holmes was mostly well re- received, but you know, there were some people who just claimed he was there to indulge his own sensibilities. Um, regardless of whatever reason that is for you, I, I do think it fits the story, and I definitely noticed it where we we don't have the quick cuts nearly as often, um, and we get them in some of the fight scenes. But you know, in the first one, just like kind of our race across town, or any any even like it wasn't limited to fight scenes at all, where we're just kind of having this chaotic look. Uh, here he's he keeps the camera far more focused and stable um he lingers way longer than he would have i think beforehand and he he lets conversations play out in more dramatic ways sometimes and so yeah it definitely seems like he's intentionally trying something different while still you know it's still stylistically completely consistent with the first it it just feels like it's kind of evolved as the story's evolved just a different focus um the first one is what draws us in to how they work together as detectives or, you know, how they interact, you know, when Sherlock's on a case and it includes Irene. So there's all this other dynamic going on. Whereas the focus, yeah, on the second film is more personal. It's um, personal between Holmes and Watson and Holmes and Moriarty as well. It's, um, just mind games mainly or games of either either the heart Mm -hmm. or the mind so i think it's just a shifting in focus but like you said it still carries the same voice and feel of the first film so to me it works like i didn't really notice so much of a difference other than it is it does have a sadness to it a bittersweetness yeah uh speaking of irene uh what did you think of rachel mcadams in the previous film alexis um i i mean i liked her more as time went on in that movie, I think it's just because I was never like a huge fan of hers to begin with. But now I now I like her a lot more as you know, years have passed because gosh, that was almost a decade ago. Um, but I think the performance grew on me the more I came to know the character of Irene Adler. I think knowing what I know about her character now, uh, I think she was a great choice and that she played it off well. Uh, overall, but it took me a while to sort of warm up to her performance as that character. Mm-hmm. Uh, so uh, you weren't here last week, but uh, both uh, me and James, probably in particular, spent a while talking about how we thought she was miscast. And I'm going to have to eat some of my words now because I think this film really misses her. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, I, like no, no offense to Numi Rapace. I, I think she's she's a very good actress. But I think it's important, probably more the writing and the fact that she's such a kind of angry character that there's, you don't have that kind of liveliness uh, in their dynamic. And it, it it doesn't feel like there's really a relationship that gets to grow there uh, between her and Watson and Holmes. Um, and I, I really think that having, you know, you know, just not getting rid of Irene and you know, having her replace the character uh, that Numira Pace plays would have, would have given the film a bit more energy, especially in the middle end. And... This is also coupled with the fact that I really hate how they get rid of her character. Just her and her death feels like a, like a, really like a kind of an afterthought that was just thrown in, and it, ha- it happens really weird, like off screen, and it just feels like the film just kind of forgets about her. And even though I, you, I, I had, well, I, I don't think she's supposed to die. Like I don't think she actually is dead personally. Well, well, hmm. well, I, I guess it, it, we're. we're going off Moriarty's word and he pretty much said, you know, she succumbed within seconds and gave the bloody handkerchief. So 
Uh, it seemed to be that pretty, pretty that they were trying to say she was dead. What, what did you think, James? Um, I mean, I took it as her being dead. Obviously, we've got a, a supposed third film around the corner, so I guess they could give a definitive answer there. Uh, just as far as the death, I. I so I'm actually going to contradict something I said last episode. Uh, well, I not last episode. We when we were just on the the gut reactions podcast talking about one of the things I don't like about sequels. In uh, horror franchises, where they they kill off the some lead characters from the previous film, and you know people say they they do that to create stakes, you know, and I usually it doesn't work, but to me it kind of actually worked here, where instantly you know Moriarty kind of loomed over the first one, but it was definitely Lord Blackwood's show, and I just thought it was a I don't know, like a, an impactful entrance to where, you know, you could tell that this was going to be, this is going to be a film that is willing to make bold moves like this, where you're not really sure how it could possibly play out. So, so having her return and almost fooling you into thinking that, you know, he's going to once again try to manipulate her and have her try to manipulate Holmes. And yet by the end of the conversation, she, she walks out of frame. And, and again, another disagreement, I guess, is just I, I like that it all happens outside of frame, that we just slowly zoom in on him sipping from his teacup. And like this, that's all like her death is kind of his first major move in the film. And I I felt like it was just personally, because even, even though I did have my my own problems with her performance in the first one, I still end up, you know, liking her. Um, and so to have that happen and just focus in on this new threat, I thought was a, a strong way to, to enter. Hmm. Yeah. I don't know. It just, it just didn't give, feel that it had much of an impact to me, especially for how big of a character she was in the first one, how important she is to the character of Holmes. I just felt brushed aside uh, to me. I don't think she's dead personally. I'm just going to throw this out there because like you said, everything happens off frame. Um, if you if I've learned anything watching anything, it's don't <laughs> believe anything till you see a body, and even then, don't believe everything. But also, it's um, yeah, she's she's critical to Holmes um, in many ways. But I think it was just so. I think it's I think it's just it was kind of to throw us off. I don't think she's actually dead personally. I mean, maybe she could be. Maybe Rachel McAdams is like, screw this franchise and never wants to come back. So they'll just keep her dead. But I feel like they left it open ended to make you go, oh, did she really die? Did she? Do? I don't know. Because even the way that Moriarty words it, she succumbed in seconds. He didn't say she died. Like he didn't use those, you know what I mean? And people are very careful about wording. So that's just something I paid attention to. Of course, I could be wrong. And actors and actresses flake all the time, so it could end up being that way. But I feel like she's, yeah, too great, too great a chemistry, too much of a, an important piece for the character. I feel like she would come back in the third film, but they probably, they took her aside, I think, so that this gypsy character who's part of the actual plot, um, you know, will actually have more screen time and more of a presence that might not have happened if Irene Adler was there because she would steal the show most of the time. Which I wouldn't be opposed to. <laughs> yeah, I I do almost wish that she would just completely replace. And again, this is not any offense to uh, Numi Rapace, who I think is a fantastic actress. 
Mm-hmm. Um, and I do think, like, I do think she has a strong presence here, at least in the first half of the movie. Um, but I guess one of the, you know, external reasons that I would think that um, Irene may be dead is just the way the producers, like, the way they talk through their decision of almost wanting wanting to be, you know, the Bond style, like a mm. new girl every movie. It seemed like it was their way of of allowing that to happen. I don't, especially with how much Rachel McAdams fought to to stay on, it seemed like she really had a fondness for the character that the producers may not have shared, but um, who knows? You know? Yeah, I never heard that till you brought that up. Um, and producers, well, psh, of course <laughs> they would want to interfere with actual, you know, narrative. But... Um, I feel like, yeah, they might feel that way, but I don't think Guy Ritchie feels that way. He's he's a person with a lot of vision. I feel like that wouldn't have been a decision he would have made. I mean, maybe I'm wrong, but um, but if what you're saying is true, then those producers de- deserve a good smack because that's just, like, dumb. And it's, <laughs> it's super odd, too, because like I said earlier, they don't treat Numi Rapace. I don't even feel a love interest vibe from her, so it's... It's no. it's just weird, you know, like you exit a character for the sake of having someone else take her position and then you don't even have her take her position. It's just a, a weird choice to me. Yeah, I, I really dislike that trend, but at least they didn't have, you know, another love interest right after uh, Holmes discovered maybe, maybe not that she's dead. Now I, I think I'm going to move into um, a bit of negatives uh, over the writing of this film so I'm not sure this film actually has a plot. Or maybe maybe it has half of a plot. Like, the central mystery is finding, or trying to find where what happened to uh, Numi Rapace's brother. I'm just going to call her that. I, I, I keep forgetting her character's Sim. name. Sim. Sim? Sim? Yeah, okay. Is, is finding her brother who seems to have gotten in over his head with Moriarty. And basically the entire film is just them kind of discovering a place where he might be going there, having a fight, and then going to another place where he may be. It, it, it just doesn't feel like there's a driving narrative to, to keep this film going. And, and some of this is, I think, part with that. I think uh, as much as I absolutely adore Jared Hess as more, I, I, I don't think he's used enough. I think he only has like, three maybe four scenes in the entire film and like we don't i don't think the film really has that fear of his presence looming over everything as this as this gigantic mastermind that's bringing the whole uh of europe onto into the verge of war i think some of that is because they spend the middle hour kind of just just with these gypsies off in the woods and kind of in these isolated locations to where you know it's a film about geopolitics with almost no politics, like we, we we're not in the locations where these where these actions will matter, and it's, it just feels like the, for the middle hour, and even for the first hour, just that the film is kind of moving between really great heartfelt scenes and really cool action scenes, but there never seems to be a driving narrative that's really propelling them forward. It's, it's like, is this even a detective story? I, I really don't think so. Like. It seems almost more like an Indiana Jones film without, and we don't even know what the artifact is. It's like because because we don't really 
know we care about who her brother is. So that mystery isn't something that's like gnawing at us for the entire film. So it just feels like we're kind of moving through kind of just points that have to happen. But it, it just doesn't feel like there's a, any, any kind of central, uh, you know, concept is really propelling the uh, narrative forward throughout the film. I don't know. Was that, was that an issue for either of you? Um, I think for me, it didn't bother me that much just because if the plot, the plot was a little thin, but because it was more of a character building edition chapter, whatever you want to call it. Um, I feel like the plot wasn't the strong point or like the reason for the movie, the character growth development arc, that was all more so the reason for the movie and not that you have to sacrifice one for the other, but it just tends to be that, you know, the plots are simpler or um, not as developed when the character development is stronger, you know, just because, you know, people aren't superhumans and not every script is going to get, you know, all the cylinders going basically. Mm-hmm. Um, so for me, it didn't bother me as much cause I was, I'm already invested in everybody and what they're doing. So it just, yeah, it didn't really bother me that the plot was a little thin. Yeah, I get that. So I guess another question is, what do you think is the central arc of this film? Like it's a character driven, it is definitely a character driven narrative, but what is the arc they're trying to get at? Do you think? I think it's definitely around Sherlock himself and letting go of you know, the old, first of all, and not and embracing change and, you know, that letting go of that selfishness, because he's quite a selfish character. I mean, <laughs> in, in any interpretation, because it's not so much that he only cares about himself. He's actually quite selfless when you come down to it, because he cares more about the good of, you know, mankind. But when it comes to like his day to day, he has to have that routine, that comfort zone, that, you know, everything has to go by the ticking clock. So letting go of that and kind of embracing a solo career or a solo life, even though Watson would still be around, but it's like, he'd have to, he has to move on alone. And I think it's more just like him embracing that and being okay with that rather than like, you know, he's very anxious in the beginning of the film about all that stuff. And I feel like that totally is gone by the end of the film. He's a stronger character. Mm-hmm. And I'll give you a quick chance, but uh, I'm not trying to interrogate you. I'm just, I'm just really curious about you know, how, how you view this film. Is if, if that's Holmes's arc, what is Watson's arc? Because the, you know, the first film was him, you know, ki- kind of coming to terms with whatever the heck his relationship with with Holmes was, and you know, his addiction to it. And even though he's trying to move on to something better, he just he can't get away, and it's really causing him a lot of grief. Here. What what is this trip to him? Is it like is it a last hurrah before you know settling down to the domesticity? Because wasn't that kind of what the last film was? I, I almost wonder if it would have been better if we came to this story, say like a year after a year, a couple of years of marriage. Yeah, maybe, but it's more about codependency. <laughs> I feel like the, the I mean, in any yeah interpretation, Holmes and Watson are extremely codependent on each other. And, um, you know, for Watson, I think his character arc isn't as strong or as defined in this case because, you know, he doesn't have as much to let go of, I feel like. But it is a matter of letting go um, because he does worry about his friend because Sherlock needs someone to do all the practical things for him all the time. (laughs) Um, You know, there's that. But I think with Watson, 
it's just more, it's more of a quiet letting go of that. And it's also just like, there isn't a last hurrah. It's more just like, it's okay to not have this life anymore. And it's okay to move on and be married. And, you know, you're not responsible for Sherlock. Like, you you know, he's a grown man. I think Watson just feels like he has to always be there to clean up the mess. And I think it's more just like, he's there because he cares about him now, not because he feels like he has to you know, like he has to be there to be responsible for him. That's kind of what I got in like the last act of the film was more like Watson was there as a friend who truly cares rather than somebody who feels like my friend needs me or they're going to, you know, run into a wall or I don't know (laughs) if that makes sense. Which I guess, yeah, I guess the theme of codependency would make sense considering that it's Watson who basically saves the day Mm -hmm. and the, the entire climax is him on his own, you know, using what he has learned over the course of all these things to, you know, really, you know, step, step up when, when, when it's, when uh, it's needed to stop world war two or world war one. Mm-hmm. One of the things that I, I had noticed this time was the way Watson treats the topic of like their codependency. And, and the first one, it's something that he's, you know, completely opposed to, you know, as he, they're in the, the prison yard and he's essentially saying like, I'm, I'm insane, you know, like I'm addicted <laughs> yeah. to this and it's crazy. And it's the the whole movie is kind of him, you know, trying to fight against himself. You know, like you look at however, like I think it happens like three times at least in the first one where he says, I'm not going to help you. And then his interest is peaked and he's, he goes and helps him and then he hates himself for it. It's like, I, I need to stop this. And in this one, like the very first scene he goes there he's not indulging Sherlock at all. I mean, he's literally just letting the darts hit him and he's like, okay, game over, you win. Um, and I think by the end of this movie, he realized that while while their codependency was you know, unhealthy in the first one, their dependency on each other wasn't inherently bad. And so as he's typing it, and he's this very you know, positive, um article about Sherlock Holmes I think he was coming to terms with the fact that yes it it got to a ridiculous point and for for both Sherlock and myself but there was definitely healthy aspects to it like I didn't have to look at it as this sick codependency it was when we get down to it, a friendship. And I think he kind of came to terms with that as opposed to fighting it like he did the entirety of the first film. Mm. Yeah, I would definitely agree with that. That's a good assessment. Uh, and then if I could talk about uh, one of the things you brought up earlier, just about the uh, like the script itself and the, the structure of the movie and how it, how it plays out. Um, I, I do agree. So I, I agree with a lot of your criticisms, but I also want to find a way to like spin it positively uh, one of the things that I, I do think works against this film uh, in a way where the first one was mostly pretty strong was while the first one maybe got bloated for about 20 minutes, it just kind of felt a little bit directionless. It was only about 15 minutes. And for the most part, you know, it was discovering this clue, which led to this clue, which led over here. Like it was, we're constantly discovering things and there's a lot of investigation. And, you know, with this movie being trying to discover this character, that we haven't met it it would almost be like if the first one if the the entire driving force of the first one was trying to find the ginger midget as opposed to finding him 20 (laughs) minutes in like they did and so here it definitely feels a a bit needlessly extended 
But something that I, I thought watching it, and then I saw your notes and saw that you thought like pretty much the exact same thing was, while there's definitely some flaws in the screenplay and that it, it feels a bit, you know, like we, they had this idea that we have to find this person, but we're going to leave that to the end. And so we need to, we need to pat it out. I think it also highlights the strength of um, Richie as a director and just the editing of the movie. Because if you're not like intentionally watching it with a critical eye, I do think a lot of these story problems just kind of fly by without even noticing. And that's while every scene doesn't really drive the story itself forward, most scenes do end up doing something like something entertaining and something that kind of relies on something that happened before. So if you're not really watching it with this intention of like analyzing the scene, like scene to scene movements and things like that, I think it does a good job at almost fooling you into thinking like, yeah, we're, we're constantly making like progressions in the plot, even though, you know, there's probably about 40 minutes where nothing in the story really changes at all. Like what we're doing now is the same as what we were doing 30 minutes ago. But because of just how lovable that the dynamic is between the two and how exciting the scenes are in the moment, uh, I think they're they're really able to to work with what you know the bare bones script they have to make it still feel mostly like a cohesive movie. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think this film's ambition, particularly with the cast and Guy Ritchie, is kind of a double edged sword. Like. I really love and respect that he changed his direction up and made it a more somber and thoughtful film. However, that sort of highlights the the fact that there's not much to think about. Um, And like, and the the fact that it's not replicating these, these story beats, it's not having that manic driving energy that will kind of ride over any kind of plot holes. It just makes the fact of the thin script a little, a, a bit, bit, kind of uncomfortably apparent, which is kind of a weird thing to say, because the things I love about this film so much are, are the way it doesn't try to repeat the previous one. However, I think that also kind of just just hurts because you it highlights the, the lack of some of these central ideas that made the first one so successful. Yeah, I agree with that too. I mean, I can see... I see your guys' points about, you know, about everything with the plot. I also think part of it is just some of the source material. <laughs> um, just knowing, you know, like having read some and, and knowing a little bit about it, that, you know, not always were the mysteries or the plots super tight either, even in Conan Doyle's work. Um, some, some of course, I know. <laughs> some, of course, were completely, but some just felt like, I remember reading a couple and being like, these, these feel kind of flat to me compared to what I know he could do, but then there'd always he, he be 53 of them. Yeah, I know. And, um, there is just which is insane too. But I think, but even in those ones that where the story felt kind of flat and then I grew up reading Nancy Drew, then it was the same thing, you know, every so often you'd be like, meh, but even in those, mm-hmm. there would be great character moments with Holmes or really funny lines and things like that. So I feel like it's just, some of it could be, um, lost in translation adaptation issue or something like that too. Um, but for the most part, Richie really um, pushes us in his own way. So I think, you know, it could be a variety of things, but maybe they just didn't pick the strongest stories to springboard from, but I'm not sure. Mm-hmm. As you mentioned, where, where the uh, script fails, I think the fact that they have such a visionary director and I think a, a 
fantastic editor. I'm not sure who edited this film, but like that really definitely picks up the slack. And uh, we might as well just talk a bit about uh, Guy Ritchie's direction. Uh, why don't you start there, uh, Alexis? So, yeah, with Guy Ritchie, I'm a huge fan of, you know, pretty much all of his films just because they're so sharp and fun to watch. And I think over the years, they've, you know, dramatically improved simply because of his adding an, a different artistic angle. And the Sherlock Holmes films are extremely artful. They have these lush costumes that are very um, kind of steampunky, but not overkill steampunk. You know, they're more like you know, a little bit more historically accurate than that, but they have their own flair, their own style. Um, he doesn't worry too much about being overly accurate with the look and feel of things, just enough to where it immerses you into another time period. And I think that's really cool. Um, his visual effects, what I love about them and his choices that he had in both the first and this um, film, especially with the forest chase scene in this film, which is just beautiful to watch. Oh, yeah. And then the other films, it was like explosions or different things that happened is that he doesn't just blow things up to blow them up or have something exciting happen and just let it be, you know, a Michael Bay fanfare type of thing. It's more like very intentional, artfully chosen, like the sound that you hear and the way that something like, yeah, like there, you'll see this tree get shot and the way it splits up apart it's almost like he's making something very artful with something that we would normally view as like kind of mindless like explosions you know and things like that and I really love that I just get mesmerized when I watch these films and watch what he does visually with them and in conjunction with Hans Zimmer's wonderful score it really adds an artistic element that we don't get a lot in effects and I think that's just something that makes it stand out personally to me um, and just his influence that he pulls from, you know, like silent films and the way that sets and shots in different directions were used um, in those days, too. I feel like Guy Ritchie really does his homework and takes inspiration from a lot of sources. So the film stands out in that way. Yeah, that forest scene in particular, even though the sound design, I think, is really mesmerizing and uh, Zimmer has a, the score is really unique there. Either that that could work as a silent sequence. Just the, mm -hmm. the things he chooses to highlight, and the way in which they are cut together, like just like cut to the, the, just the loading of the cannon is just like astonishing. I think the whole sequence is just like a mini masterpiece. Mm -hmm. I, I, it's really hard to describe just what he does, but the, the way he just mixes sound and visuals, you know, everyone running full speed, then cutting to one person slow motion, then cutting to someone shooting. To, and then you know, the trees exploding. It's just, just this kind of cacophony of images, but it's never confusing. And you always know exactly what's going on. And each image like gives you an impression that uh, informs the next image we see. It's just incredible. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it's what, mini masterpieces, what I had in my notes about that forest scene. <laughs> um, <laughs> that honestly is one of the like most astonishing little action sequences ever. Um, and what he does with the camera is just so mind-numbingly cool to me. Like, where even if you did call it action for action's sake, well, if the action is that cool, then <laughs> let it be action for action's sake because it's awesome to look at. Um, but it's just, it's so, he does things where I just can't imagine, you know, where that idea comes from, like where he decides, okay, I want to see this from this angle and to do this from this point of view where, 
I mean, there's the, there's the scene where the sharpshooter is is chasing after them, and the camera remains completely horizontal uh, with his eye line, and obviously he's running at full speed, so his head is bobbing all over the place. So the camera is moving completely, you know, just frantically, but we have his head remain dead center for the entire time. It just it feels intense, and then like whenever you know in slow motion he he yells fire and it all it's just like this grating sound you can make out what he's saying but it's just like this this grating almost iron kind of sound um and then it i think you could say you know like oh it's very zack snyder at some points but it still it feels very very you know guy Ritchie. It, it doesn't feel like he's copying any other uh any other directing style he's just doing you know what he's what he's doing uh snyder would have just, done it in one long slow motion shot <laughs> yeah and he, he uses a lot more different kind of uh cuts and something that I, I love that he does is whenever it goes slow motion sometimes the camera is still and it's just watching a scene but that that's mostly just you know as we as we focus on a, a tree or a line of trees as something passes through it there are other times where characters are running and the camera's not even just like moving in the direction they're moving. Sometimes it's behind them or moving in front of them. Like, and it's, it's not just static. It's, it's, it's like doing this, this pass by, um, through the action. Like we're, we're watching the slow motion still and we start from the right of the frame and we move to the left. Uh, it's, it's, like it's the, just the, cool. The next how he evolution to, of bullet time. Yeah. That's what it feels like. It, it's, it's to me incredibly impressive how he's able to move the camera despite what all is happening. I mean, there's there's bullets flying, there's uh, artillery shots, like there's all sorts of stuff going on, and it's a forest full of people. But how he's able to move spatially in that scene is just really, really cool. And none of it looks like green screen. I, like I have no idea like where practical ends and CGI begins because obviously there's a lot of CGI there, but I could not for the life of me point out what is what. Yeah, that's that's how you use that's how you're supposed to use CGI effects in my opinion. Like people <laughs> overkill them rather than they should feel even if you can tell like obviously, you know, this isn't really happening, so there is CGI. But even if that is in your mind, you should feel like you do and not be able to just pinpoint all of it. Like it should just flow seamlessly and organically throughout the film. And I think that's that's another, you know, astonishing part about what he does is that you don't really notice or really want to nitpick about it. You're just mesmerized. Yeah, I don't think they shot cannons at uh, Robert Downey Jr., but I'm really not sure. <laughs> yeah, it's, see, it feels real. <laughs> um, but honestly, like, on, the, on the subject of CGI, um, it is weird. You know, in, in that sequence, I completely agree. But there are other moments where, to me... And I don't even mean this in a bad way. It, it's obvious that it's CGI, but the way the the way he colors this movie, like the color choices of it, and just the the style, it's it's not even like bad. Like you can look at it, and you can say, "Oh, that's absolutely CGI," and no way do I believe that's real. But it's it's got a certain flair to it. Like uh, I mean, there's even a scene from the first one that comes to mind when the you know the ship. Uh, is pulled out of its dock and into the water and you've got that huge chain flinging about like it's the movement is just so crazy and like the weight of it it looks cg but at the same time you know it kind of completely works and it, 
not to just constantly bring up Snyder, but it, it reminds me of what how Snyder used CGI in 300, where it's this is very obvious, but we're going to use it stylistically to our benefit, to where it blends itself into this world. And so, you know, with this movie, there are times where, you know, you can't really tell where practical ends and CGI begins. And there are other times where the CGI is in your face, but it's just so stylistically consistent with the movie that it's kind of cool. Like when the, when Watson fires the cannon and the tower falls and like the, the way the smoke rises doesn't, it doesn't look like how we know it would, but it, it also just looks so cool. And like, I'm like, mm. I'm glad they went this way. And I, I just want to mention just the other, a couple other particular sequences. Um, there's the, uh, that first fight um, where, uh, uh, Holmes has that very racially insensitive uh, Asian costume, and you know, they're all just kind of whistling together, which is just such a lovely little touch. Um, but once it starts, I was kind of annoyed at first. It felt like they were trying to recreate the uh, the they call it Holmes' vision uh, that they had in the first one, you know, where he would you know imagine himself you know countering and and attacking all, all before the fight, but actually. Since they did that same that technique later on with Moriarty, I'm actually thinking that that particular fight at the beginning was more kind of a uh, kind of a setup for the forest scene because just it's a very similar way to where it it just kind of shows the guy's face turning, then shows like them reaching for a weapon, and then shows the impact. It, it felt it at first it felt like kind of a, a lame ripoff of the of the other type, but now looking back at it. It, it does feel like more un, unique and in the style of the forest chasing, which is just something interesting I noticed. I don't think that it's um, it would be a ripoff if they if they had done it that way. Though I'm glad they didn't because the payoff with the Moriarty chess, the actual chess game oh, no, being no, no. them, yeah. you know, in their minds fighting. But I think it's more like Holmes. That's how he thinks, and he's an introverted thinker type and you, and you're not going to really get to see that inner monologue or that understand that how his brain works as well as, you know, you might need to, to understand him because he's kind of crazy sometimes, but I feel like that's what <laughs> they want to show. You know, that's the way guy Richie chose to show it was through the boxing strategy, just as a way to show you what's going on inside his head because his head is constantly cogs moving. That's how, you know, he's Sherlock and you know, that's what made the big payoff later with Moriarty so fantastic is because like, you know, they play a game of chess, but their real chess game, yeah, it begins the second they start mind gaming how they're going to play it out and knowing that they're, they're the same, that they're going to, you know, treat this entire confrontation the same way. So it wouldn't have bothered me, but yeah, I wouldn't have been as, as great of an epic payoff later if they had done it twice in the movie. Yeah, and the other one, another one I mentioned, want to mention is the uh, the Cossack fight in the, uh, I guess kind of a, uh, that what is the, what is that what is that establishment even I don't know, but uh, the, the, the way they're just kind of it plays along it, it's almost like a kind of a Pirates of the Caribbean thing just the way he's jumping in and around all these acrobatics and it has this really really lively uh, gypsy music playing mm-hmm. all over it, it it's much more. Uh, just of a normal fight scene but he still plays it so much fun and the way it's constantly moving or the way it subverts things like where he first pulls the guy down and he goes through the entire fight and then uh and then she uh, intervenes and kind of breaks his train of thought yeah and then just it's it's constantly building off of that 
And when they're, when they're tied together, the way Holmes is trying to fight him and w- with the rope and just do- trying to dodge him and then like spinning him around, it's just really, really creative. And I, I just love the kind of the wrench that, um, what was her name again? Uh, Sim. Sim. Just kind of, she's constantly throwing a wrench into his perfectly laid out plans. Just the way he reacts to that, I think, is very, very funny. And also, all of that counterbalanced against uh, Watson gambling downstairs. And then when he knocks the money over, he's like, "Now wait just a minute." <laughs> just all hell breaks loose, and he's like, "There was a fight. I needed you, Holmes. Where were you?" It's just such a fun little sequence. Yeah, it was very pirates. <laughs> I, I love that she interrupted like the Holmes vision uh, and just the look of surprise on his face. Like this is the first time that's ever happened. Uh, and then I, I do think the thing that made that scene the most enjoyable was just constantly coming back to Watson. It, watching Jude Law just have a blast during that scene is one of the most like entertaining bits of the whole movie. Just there's probably like three moments where he just, He'll lay a card down and look around, like satisfied with himself, and just burst into laugh, like this <laughs> congratulatory laughter. Um, and then, honestly, it just the way he physically carries himself. Um, you, you know, when he's sober and he's got this limp, he he walks with a very dignified manner. But you know, after he's had a few drinks on him, I love when he comes in. He just says, "There was a fight," and he trips <laughs> over and like falls through these boards. And then instead of like collecting himself, he just looks up from the room and just there was a fight and continues exactly where he was. Um, he's just so entertaining in the role. And the fact that you can like, I, I always think that's the mark of like a, a good action director. If you can infuse, uh, infuse action scenes with these fun character moments where it, you know, I mean, it, it's really at it, you know, at its core, it's these two people punching each other. But it's made so much more because we know who these people are and we're giving them individual moments in the action. And yeah, that, that whole sequence, um, it's, it's, a, it's a lot of fun. Like it, I think, you know, some people would complain that it goes on too long. But I don't know. I think that's one of those scenes in, the, in both of these movies that just kind of encapsulates what makes it so fun is it's, it's, it's vision, visionary style and it's fun characters. And that, that's all strong there. And, and throughout the film, Jude Law is giving a very deep, dramatic performance. So those little moments where he gets to be silly are really welcome. <laughs> Just the scenes of him dancing uh, with the gypsies. <laughs> you know, what if you do? Don't drink anything. What if you do? Don't don't let them make you dance. Oh yeah, it'll be the end of you. And the final sequence, uh, which is another, uh, uh, I guess, another mini masterpiece, that, well, is the entire chess scene. That's set against um, uh, Watson and her uh, figuring out who who the assassin is, and then as that moves into you know um, uh, Moriarty's foiled plan, and then finally the sequence where they go into the Holmes of Vision, and it's like you know come now, you don't think you're the only one who can play this game, and that that that, that touch makes absolutely no sense where they're psychically communicating to each other, but I don't care, I could not care less that it makes absolutely no sense. Because it's such a satisfying beat, you know, after having Holmes be, be you know, this god among men through, through this entire series. And now he's literally met his match who can, you know, match him both physically but mentally at every turn. It's just such a wonderful little touch. Yep, I agree. I love it. I think it was just a great way to show that um, 
that their minds think the same way and that they're equally matched. Um, Because if he has his own Moriarty vision, you know, that kind of is the best way to determine that, that they're equal, you know. Oh, my gosh. (laughs) I'm like losing my train of thought. Whatever the word is for frenemy that is in front of me anyway. But yeah, that they're equal in their um, own rights against each other. I really thought that was cool. Yeah, like it doesn't make a lot of like practical sense that they'd be able to do that. But I think it was more just like to show how they're equal in their in that special way by connecting it to Holmes' vision with Moriarty vision. And it felt like the most intellectual fight ever. <laughs> just two people who yes. know <laughs> the human anatomy and just well, naturally you'd go here and I'd get to here and then this would happen and um you know we we see it in action movies all the time where it's like just you know almost a minute straight of people blocking each other's blows but to go you know to slow it all down and get into the heads of the people as they anticipate this was really cool and the moment where he does say you know come now you you can't be the only one who does this like i get goosebumps there because the the holmes vision is like I think, you know, stylistically, both movies really mirror Sherlock Holmes himself, just like the way it's directed, like the frenzied pace. And then as he gets more reserved and, and sad as, as the second one goes on and the, the film takes on a somber tone. But more than anything, I feel like Holmes' vision is where we're in his head the most. Like this is this is where everything else in the movie is external. Right now, we are we are in his world. And so to to be there and to hear him start it off and then to hear a voice that's not Robert Downey Jr.'s mm-hmm. during that moment just throws everything off. Uh, yeah, that, that scene is just amazing. And that little grin that Jared, Jared Harris gives. I mean, we have to talk about Jared Harris. This is such a wonderful performance. And what I was really noticing is that his performance isn't menacing whatsoever. Like, everything he does is so quiet and polite and collected. And just, like, on its face, there's, there's, he never breaks that. There's never a moment where you feel, you just, you, where you, where he feels dangerous in that way. And yet, there is just something about his eyes that is absolutely terrifying, no matter what he's doing. And it's so subtle. Like, I, I'm not even sure I can point it out, but just something about the way he, he just, he plays it. In spite of him being so, you know, kind and soft-spoken, there's just there's absolutely no soul, you know, in his eyes. And I have no idea how an actor even does that, but it's it's really incredible. I think he channels the character amazingly um, because it is a quiet villain, and the whole way that they mess with each other is a chess game. It's a long game, and it's quiet, and it's they're not going to show each other. You know, it's all in the head. It's, they're not going to reveal their hands, I guess, to each other, not to mix game metaphors. But um, yeah, they, the way that he portrays him is, um, you know, really solid, but also his voice. <laughs> and like, you know, he's yes. he has a really creepy voice. So I think that that's at least something to where like, if you didn't, if you didn't have that, he probably would be even less menacing. But there's something about that voice that's just very like, creature like that is 
intense and scary and it just adds to the atmosphere and the way that he comes as like a wolf in sheep's clothing, you know, being a professor and that's supposed to be like a person who stewards people to enlightenment. But Moriarty is quite um, a, a sociopathic type character where there's not, I, the way I've always read him is he doesn't really feel or have a lot of deep uh, remorse or, you know, those kinds of feelings that most human beings would get. So that's another reason why he's fascinating. Whereas Sherlock is kind of borderline on that, but he ultimately fights to feel and to do the right thing. You know, he always is more concerned about the greater good and that's what separates the two of them. Um, because if Sherlock did let go of that sort of, you know, what Moriarty would consider weakness, this, you know, caring for the greater good of man, he could be like, you know, this amazing unstoppable force, but that's not a good enough reason for him to forego that morality. So I just think that their whole exchange is amazing, <laughs> you know, and even though it's short and I would definitely yeah. want more. Yeah. Just, it seems like the, the happier and more obliging he gets, the, the, yes. the deadlier he is like when he's, when he's got uh homes on the meat, which I can't believe they did that in a PG 13 film. He has Holmes on the meat hook and he's just like swinging him around. He's just so happy. And he did not like, he, he, doesn't, he doesn't feel like it's not how you normally play a psychopath mm -hmm. in a film. Like, but he, there's something just so, so subtle. And I think it's just, I think this like performance could have gotten like a, you know, a, a, a best supporting actor. I think it, it is so good and layered for how little he actually does. Mm-hmm. Like physically, yeah. It, it it makes me wish that we could go back and redub the scenes with Moriarty in the first yeah. one just to add Hess's voice because there there is just something about it that it's almost skin crawling and and I I think the fact that he is so poised and dignified and like unsinister sometimes in the way he presents himself is what makes him scary because I mean. It it's scary when it feels as if the villain that you're opposing carries himself as if they have the upper hand, you know, because there's a there's a reason they must feel that way. So for him to spend so much of the movie not even worried, like there's almost never even a moment where he he feels like he has to or like it, it doesn't feel like an act, and that's what makes it so scary. You know, he's not hiding his real worry that oh maybe Sherlock can do this. It, it's not until the beginning of of their fight scene where Sherlock says, you know, my disadvantage, my arm, his, his rage. It's not even until that moment of, of his rage before we feel that at all, just because of it's a very honest sense of confidence. And, uh, and I think Jared Hess is the only actor who can make something as sadistic and twisted as sticking someone on a meat hook and spinning them around somehow like <laughs> dignified looking like with him, you know, singing, and dancing around and his facial expression like i mean he can say so much with just the raise of an eyebrow and it, it doesn't it's not like this joker-esque scene he's just he still feels like this college professor in an intellectual as he's spinning this guy around it's 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 incredibly compelling his rage shows itself as a grin yeah <laughs> it's just kind of something so terrifying about that and yeah, just the entire final scene, even though there's a lot of dialogue, everything is communicated just in looks between him and 
Sherlock, and as it moves closer to the end, there's so much, there's these long stretches of silence where it's just them, you know, staring into each other's eyes, and it's all just these tiny facial twitches, and Robert Downey Jr. is also one of the, one of the best actors with, you know, facial acting, and it, it's just this, like, clash of titans with, with nothing being said, them just staring at each other. Yeah, I agree. I mean, they're both just, they got it, I mean, you know, actor-wise, they've got it going on, and they, they know how to use everything to propel their character and the story forward even though he's not in it a lot i have to bring up stephen fry <laughs> just because of how much fun he is to me he's he's such a a funny personality and i feel like sometimes he does kind of play the same kind of character but it's just it's such a fun character to watch um and you can really see how like he and sherlock would be brothers uh, you can only imagine, you know, what what growing up with the two of them would have been like. But, um, yeah, I think there are just a couple of moments with him that are just pretty hilarious. Yeah, I, I didn't need to see that much of him, but he he's very funny. <laughs> yeah, he's kind of just a good character actor overall. Like, he doesn't need a big role to make an impression, <laughs> which is good. Um, I really like Kelly Riley a lot. And even though, yeah, she's not in the film's a huge amount. I still think she has a strong presence as an actress. And if you've seen her in anything, especially Calvary, um, you would know that, but it's like, I really just, um, I like that they chose her for Mary cause she's a lot stronger than like the typical, uh, you know, a lot of times I would imagine they'd pick somebody a little bit more dainty Britishy, but she has like this really strong Irish presence to her. <laughs> and I, I like that a lot. So, you know, even though it's a small character part, it's, um, I enjoy seeing her in this movie too, in both movies. And I like that Holmes never phases yes. her like, at all. <laughs> like, it seems like she knows who he is. She always knows exactly what he's playing. And it, it's, it's really fun. Just that the way she kind of just looks at him, like, I know what you're up to. Just stop it. And I think even though she does have very little screen time in both films, I think she really holds her own, um, you know, against this, you know, this this character. Yeah, absolutely. We brought her up before, and I don't want everything that we said about her to be negative. While I I don't think the script gives Numi Replace like pretty much anything to do, I do think there is something to be said for at least for me. She she definitely has a a presence that can be felt in a movie. Um, First of all, just visually, like she, there's an almost like this otherness kind of quality about her, like just this foreign look. Like she captures the essence of a gypsy in the uh, in the movie. Like I mean, Numi repays as an actress. She she has this kind of different beauty about her, and I think when they cast her, they they use that to their benefit. Where it's she does look different from everyone else and it, it kind of like this just an intriguing kind of persona and so despite the fact that there's really not a whole lot of character work going on uh, just between uh, her look and I think she's even able just to capture it in her accent like there's you can hear hints of this and hints of that but it's this it's this amalgamation of of different kind of dialects almost where it, it she sounds and looks like a gypsy yeah very something very exotic about her, her looks, I think, definitely play well to that. I like that she's, well, both she and I would say Kelly Riley, too, are not very Hollywood. Um, that stands out to me. Um, I think they just, they they all have a unique, or they both have a unique look. And, 
you know, not that the look doesn't, isn't everything you have to be able to perform too. Thankfully they can. Um, but I also, I like that, you know, Guy Ritchie seems to take, you know, I mean, he's pretty diverse in his cast most of the time and will kind of, kind of just Mm -hmm. choose people who do stand out. And I like that about, um, the people he chooses really is, you know, makes the film, more fun to watch and then just more interesting chemistry between characters. Yeah. Uh, and uh, I think man from uncle with uh, Elizabeth, the and Alicia Vikander, I think he, yeah. he uses them really well there. I guess one thing I, one little exercise I do want to do before we end, like normally whenever I bring up a criticism, especially of like a plot, I want to try and offer a solution it's pure. I'm kind of left perplexed, maybe for the first time, is that I'm not, I think, I'm not entirely sure what the plot of this film should be. Like, I don't, I don't know that the, the, the finding the brother is really a good plot for a detective story, just at least the way it's told. And so me, I've been thinking about all week since I watched it, just how how I would, if I were, you know, if I had this film, what, what I would do to this narrative, try, trying to keep it as intact as possible. I'm not entirely sure what I would do to this film to give it that core central like, narrative and mystery. Um, I know y'all, neither of y'all had as much of an issue with it as I did, but what would you think? Like, just like using, try, like trying to use the, the structure of the narrative that we have in place. What do you think would be good to give it that, you know, central dramatic thrust well i think as far as you know you were saying it might not have been that great for the mystery but in most mystery shows or things including sherlock holmes it is usually about finding a missing person (laughs) so there's like i mean that's pretty common but maybe it just needed more like it was connected to moriarty it was connected to everything but maybe it just we needed more of a reason to care for um, that character because we do think um, Sim is cool you know she seems fun but there wasn't as much time to develop her or the brother I think maybe having some more you know maybe even not about flashbacks or something behind the scenes with them um, to sort of reveal a strength and bond like why would this brother like betray his sister for this cause like why what would force someone to do that and you know a little bit more meat, you know, about their relationship. And um, I think that's what it was missing is that you have all that with Holmes and with Moriarty and with everyone else, you have this buildup, but with them, you kind of don't. So you just don't really care as much as, you know, about, about the end goal of them finding him. It doesn't have that sense of urgency, I guess. Um, So that would be like, probably my suggestion is it's not so much that it's bad, for a mystery or a bad choice to have something like that, but it has to have a lot more going for it to last the length of a film versus like a serial or a procedural, sorry, episode on TV or something. You kind of need, um, yeah, just a little bit more character development to really have us invest in them and want their mystery to get solved. Yeah. But you, James, what do you think? Yeah, I definitely agree with that. You know, you don't have to go flashbacks, but I think because we spend so much time with Sim, I think there was plenty of opportunity that could have been taken to flesh out her relationship with her brother, mm-hmm. um, especially, and his his performance wasn't really big enough to to bring up in, um, you know, talking about the leads, but 
the uh, the guy who shoots himself first. Just talking about that scene, I thought he was fantastic. Mm-hmm. Like he he completely owned that scene. Um, and I think there there were moments like that where we could have, you know, this is you know you know it's in the midst of you know cries for anarchy and political chaos and things, and they're like they're at the heart of it. And so I think there was a lot of opportunity to explore that more. And like you say, it's a it's a geopolitical movie. It's kind of set out in the forest for large portions of it. And I think just what I would do would be you, you can keep it, like Alexis said, where, you know, the idea of the, the driving force trying to find somebody, that that's fine. I think what would have made it a bit more interesting is if you set it more in the cities that we're after and you had more clues, like he was he was here and then you get there and you discover something new um, and it leads them mm-hmm. over here. It just make it more of a, of a Sherlock mystery where they're having to try to figure out based on what we know took place here, where would his next location be? And then honestly, I think where Jared Hess not playing Moriarty, I don't think Moriarty would really be con- like considered that great of a villain just because he, he seems not really involved in a lot of what, what happens. And so to me to just like the, the big thing to fix, to fix this issue would be to, to set it more in the city, to have more like more, you know, clues trying to get from here and there, and as we get to these different locations, find times to have conversations where we learn more about them, and then maybe the events that they're chasing, like they're they're following mission after mission, like almost always just one step behind her brother. It could be, you know, that he's all of these different things he's doing for Moriarty, and so. As as they're looking for him, we're learning more and more about the the extent that Moriarty is going through with this plan. So, I think just to to include more beats like that, I think would have would have helped it a bit more. Yeah, I, like, the thing I came to is I I, I think it would, would be replacing Numero Pace's character with Rachel McAdams as Irene, Irene Adler, and first and foremost because I think she's. Her, her character, nothing against the actress, her character is just a much more dynamic presence in the film. And mm. I, it would also give that personal connection to t- uh, with Team Holmes to Moriarty because, you know, she she was working for them and, and you know, living under this, like, horrifying threat all that time. I think, you know, having her presence would give a, a you know, more direct connection to, you know, Moriarty. And, and if it was, like, if it was someone... Rachel McAdams or Irene Adler cared about that was under threat. It was it's just you know we 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 simply we've had a whole movie with with uh, Irene Adler, so we care more about her than the than this new character. And mm-hmm. as as you said, I think just making Moriarty more involved step by step. I think was another sequence <laughs> the the opera sequence, which is one where the weight of Moriarty's genius and the fact that he is play, just play, toying with Holmes really hits you. Like where they're trying to go find where where is this bomb? Where's this bomb? And then he finds this little kind of sh- sh- shrine set up where, where um, I think it was a chess piece. Mo- yeah, where Moriarty wants him to find it, and he's just watching him, and you really just feel so helpless. And that that that's where the presence of Moriarty as the villain, as this master that might even be better than Holmes, really hits you. I think if it was more like that, then like because I, as much as. Zamar and and obviously Guy Ritchie cared about the gypsies. I really don't, at least not in this film. 
I never really got a feel for their culture or, or really any of the characters outside of Simza. But even then, it just I don't feel a lot of connections. I think I don't think the gypsies really need to be in this film. So if giving that to Irene Adler instead, I think would have solved a lot of the dramatic issues in the film. Yeah, I agree with that too. I think you could have you could have done the mystery and and included her and had made it all come together. So I could see that for sure. I could there be a law that every action film has to have a, a an opera sequence? Can we do that? You think? I think it would work because they most most often they're pretty fantastic. I feel like they already do, <laughs> <laughs> but they're also good. So I think we're about ready to uh, wrap this up. Uh, I want to close out with uh, getting your your uh, star ratings for this film and how it ranks uh, with the first one for you. Let's uh, start with you, Alexis. What is your star rating for this one? Oh, gosh. I'd give it four stars. Yeah. I really like it, so. And how does it rank against the uh, the first one? Oh, gosh. See, I don't know now. Now I'm confused. Talking about it has made me rethink <laughs> it. But I think if I, I'd have to watch them back to back, and I could probably do a clearer star rating. So I'm not sure. <laughs> okay. What about you, James? Uh, for me personally, like, in terms of enjoyment, I, I put them pretty close together. Um, just because I, I see more more flaws probably with this one and just the way it tells its story. There are more lulls and there are more moments where I'm like, I'm having fun, but you know, what are we doing again? I I would say that overall I I put the first one ahead and as for star rating, I think I gave the, the first four stars, so I, I'd give this one three and a half, but uh like I said, in terms of just in the moment enjoyment for myself, they're they're Pretty much equals. Okay. Um, I'm going to be, <laughs> no surprise, probably be the lowest. Uh, I think I'm going to give it three. Just being someone who who really loves dissecting and exploring narratives and how that interacts with character arcs. Like th- this, this film felt like a movie that shot without a script and yet had such a fantastic director and editor that it still somehow, <laughs> by some miracle, works. And, and But still, that, that does cut down my enjoyment and it, it it lessens the amount of you know, investment I can give into the characters and the plot. Um, so I, I think I'll, I'll give it three stars, just, you know, highlighting how gorgeously directed it is. And just, there are so many moments of just pure genius throughout, just from the cast and the director and all of that, that, you know, I can't help but like this movie for, for whatever flaws it has. So on its initial release in December of 2011, it grossed $186 million domestically and $358 foreign for a worldwide total of uh, $545 million on its $125 million budget. It received a pretty mixed reviews. A, a lot of critics still have the, the same objection they had to the first one, with, with just they didn't like its take on the character, which, whatever, I mean, it's fun. <laughs> and then a lot of people just didn't, didn't feel that it lived up to the first film. Although notably, Roger Ebert uh, enjoyed it more than the first one and gave it a 3.5 out of 4 stars. And there, it does have its ardent fans out there. Over the years, as far as its, like, its legacy, it I don't really feel like it has a lot. Like It seems like the, the most I hear it talked about, aside from the occasional fan like a Alexis or you, James, it, it seems that when it's mentioned, it's kind of as a disappointing sequel. Um, and I, 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 I don't, I don't think it gets like the, the, the brilliant moments. I don't think get the, uh, respect they deserve. I think like Jared Hess is a kind of an all time great villain. So that, I think that is kind of disappointing, although I do understand some of it. 
As far as a sequel, this is it, it basically looking through looking through it. It seemed like every year since 2011, like one of the stars or producers has made a statement. Yes, this movie is definitely coming. We have an idea, and it'll shoot at the end of before the end of the year. <laughs> this has been basically you look through the headlines. There's been one of those for every year since it came out, and the latest one was from uh, from last month, where uh, uh, Robert Downey Jr. said, "Yeah, they, they, he really wants to do it. He has an idea, but he has other projects coming along." And you know, Guy Ritchie is still working on Aladdin, and that's not coming out till summer next year. Um, and but maybe if uh, Robert Downey Jr. is uh, leaving the MCU uh, with this with the Infinity War, although however, <laughs> Jude Law is now coming into it with uh, Captain Marvel. So I really don't know if the sequel's coming. Um, and I, I don't, I really don't want anyone besides Guy Ritchie uh, doing this. I don't, I don't think they, I think it's so much about what this series is, is Guy Ritchie. So uh, what are your thoughts on sequel? Do you want one? Uh, or <laughs> do you actually think we'll get it, uh, Alexis? Oh, I really want one. I feel like um, one last film would kind of solidify it as, a, you know, as his interpretation of Holmes. Cause I feel like there was just some, yeah, open-ended things that do need to be wrapped up, you know, and I, I hope that we'll get it. I feel like, um, the actors and Guy Ritchie love it so much that, you know, I don't think it's a matter of them not wanting to do it. I think, yeah, everyone's just life is crazy, but I know that, yeah, Robert Downey Jr. did mention recently, you know, again, that they're, they're looking he's like, we're looking at Sherlock Holmes three right now. So it's like, it's being discussed. So I know they've been saying that for years, but he said this in like a more recent entertainment weekly interview. So I'm like, okay, I feel like that has a little bit more hope to it because it's recent and it's in a major magazine. So I feel like, you know, even it's not a solid yes, but it's more of an inclination. But yes, I definitely do want one. I would love a third one. Iron Man's gonna die. Yeah. Um, well, I kind of think that, but we, that's a whole other topic. Um, but yeah, there. I really would love to see them come back together. The cast, yeah, has such great energy and um, chemistry that you know. And there's all there's so much material that you could always find a great story to tell. What about you, James? What are your thoughts? Uh, in, in terms of if I want one, I, I absolutely want one. Uh, I love the ending of this, just typing the question mark mm -hmm. on the end. Like, it's just such a great way to go out. And it's it's so like, it's pretty much just a promise for more. Um, and so I'd, I'd love to be back with these characters. Um, and it just, you know, it'd be super interesting considering how well they managed to not retread the exact same thing it'd be i'd be really interested to see where they take this relationship now what creative decisions they decide to uh to have as for if, if i think it'll happen well robert downey jr said they should move infinity war up a week and they did <laughs> and i think that his word has a uh, you know when when robert downey jr says something i think people listen but honestly <laughs> In, in more like practical terms, I think it may depend on uh, Aladdin's reception uh, with, with King Arthur kind of coming and going. And uh, I believe being a, a mm -hmm. not, not a, a box office disaster, but you know, a, a disappointment um, for like, as, as a director being looked at from the, the eyes of a studio, I think he does, he's in a position where he has to, to kind of prove himself and so he's not really in a position to say, hey, I want to make Sherlock Holmes 3, now green light it, you know, that he doesn't have that kind of power right now. And so, you know, if Aladdin 
I don't think there's any way it has a chance of making, you know, Beauty and the Beast kind of money. But if it's if it's another success, kind of akin to Jungle Book and things like that, then I I'll remain hopeful that that they can get it off the ground. Yeah. Man, the man from Uncle also bombed, which that makes me so mad. <laughs> but yeah, it does feel like uh, Guy Ritchie's kind of, kind of his his status is is uh, definitely being tested. So yeah, and interestingly enough, despite how lackluster the reception for this sequel was, it does seem there's a fa- fairly lively interest online in another one of these films. So I guess people do feel like there's there's something here, and and yeah, I'm sure that Guy Ritchie and especially Robert Downey Jr. and Jude Law. I think I'm sure they have something to offer uh, for a next appearance. So I'm not holding my breath for a sequel, but I would love to get one. Same. All right. Uh, so before we close out, uh, Alexis, you want to tell people where they can find your, any of your stuff online or connect with you online? Well, I'm most active on Twitter. That's my preferred arena. And my handle is at Phoenician Rises. That's P-H-O-E-N-I-C-I-A-N-R-I-S-E-S. And that's where I'm mainly at. But yeah, like I mentioned, um, well, I guess not on the podcast, but I mentioned to you guys earlier, I do um, podcast and I also do some posts online at realworldtheology.com. So I do some reviews there if you're interested in checking those out. If you guys, I mean, I do have projects online, including my book and including um, I'm going to be sharing things on my website, which is phoenicianrises.com, you know, artwork and things for my upcoming screenplays that are in progress. So yeah, you can also go on my website as well to check out the projects I have worked on. And uh, if you want to uh, follow us, we are on Facebook as a Franchise Fatigue Podcast. We're also on Twitter at at Franchised Pod. And if you want to find our older episodes, we're at FranchiseFatiguePodcast.com. And uh, what about you, James? Where, Where can people find you? The primary uh, place to find me, at least talking about movies, would be just on Letterboxd. Uh, there is J.L. Hamry. It's J-L-H-A-M-R-I. Um, I've kind of fallen behind on keeping up with reviewing all the new films I've seen, just with <laughs> classes. But um, I'm going to try with this semi-lull in, in coursework to, to write up something from what I've seen. Uh, it's been an interesting year for movies, so... I try to try to catch back up, and uh, I am also on Letterboxd as Gabriel Green, and I am on Twitter as Gabe A Green. And uh, for next week, we are starting Star Wars, which is very exciting, and also kind of terrifying. Good luck with that. <laughs> Just <kidding. laughs> yeah. for for what it is, like I think that this is going to be like, you know. It, Every aspect of the conversation that we have here, there's just going to be so much to talk about with, you know, pre-production and everything that goes into it. My goodness, there's about 27 documentaries out there just on A New Hope alone. <laughs> and and then obviously, my goodness, the legacy will have, I mean, we could have hours of conversation yeah. just there. So I- I'm excited. And what is this film's legacy? <laughs> everything. <laughs> Movies. So th- this is going to be very fun. Yeah, next week will be A New Hope. And, man, I cannot wait. So, until next week, we will see you in the sequel. It's so overt, it's covert. It's covert.